0: Whether we're talking about business, wellness, travel, or relationships, I've always thought age is just a number. Welcome to Ageless with me, Cynthia Raleigh, and my daughter, Kit Keenan.
1: is just jumping in here to welcome you to the show. So this week, we sit down with mother-daughter duo Martha and Sarah Hoover. Martha is a former sex crimes prosecutor turned restaurateur. And Sarah is the director of Gagosian's Chelsea Art Gallery. So let's just jump right in with Sarah and Martha. You know, there are so many things that we want to talk to you guys about. But um, most of our listeners are around my age, like college age or post-grad, kind of figuring out their career paths and everything. So we like to ask a lot of our guests what a day in the life looks like at work. Mommy, you take
2: it away. You go first.
3: Well, my day at work today in 2020 is significantly different than it was not just a year ago, but Many years ago, when Sarah was a little girl, so I, you know, and what has happened is, as my company has become more prosperous, more stable as it's grown, my schedule has changed significantly. Um, and to be honest, uh, when my when Sarah's little brother, the baby of the family, when he turned sixteen. I decided that meant in Indiana, he could drive himself to school.
2: And that was a
3: huge, that was a a real changing. It was a tipping point for me because for the first time in my uh, professional career and my career as a mother, I did not have to be, I made the decision for myself to never get up at the ass crack of dawn again to get (laughs) to work. And um, I literally changed my entire work life to really fit what works for me, for my personal life. I happen to, um, I, I don't like getting up early, I don't like getting dressed early, I like, I get a lot of significant thinking, kind of big picture work done in the morning, I like to work at home where I am now and be totally uninterrupted until about two in the afternoon. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that I'm in the restaurant world. So hours and schedules are very insignificant to people in the restaurant world because with my company, for instance, we have restaurants that span breakfast, lunch, dinner. We have production kitchens that work almost. So it was really fine for me to make an appearance and have meetings and go to the production kitchen and do all of my site visits after two, and I can do it any of seven days a week. So I am not, by nature, my business, I'm not confined to a Monday through Friday, nine to six or whatever this is. And I like working at night, so it really works for me. How about you, Sarah? What's your day like now?
2: Well, now it's obviously totally different than it was before COVID because uh, the gallery is still closed. So I'm doing all my work from home. Um, But I actually, I feel like I copied you mom. And I don't know, maybe I'm becoming my mother, but I don't like to get up early either. I think the only difference between us is that you like to take naps and I do not, I cannot take a nap, but I don't like to get up early. And the gallery has always opened at 10. So I've never had to get up that early. Um, But now that we're closed physically, there's no uh, brick and mortar that's open for me to work out of. Um, I do my first few hours of work from my bed too. And I love like, I'm a big meditator journaler first thing in the morning. So I need like an hour for all of that. And um, I have created a child who also loves (laughs) to sleep late. Very pleased with myself. You know, everyone talks about like how much less sleep you get when you're a mom, but I've trained that little shit. Like he slept till 9:30 yesterday. We're good over here, and he doesn't go to school till the afternoon. So I usually like to do work from home and be around him in the morning, and then when he leaves for school, I'll take Zoom calls and meetings if I have to. Um, and when before COVID, I would usually get up early, hang out with my kid not super early, but like 7.30, hang out with my kid, go to Chelsea, work out in Chelsea, shower at the gym, go straight to the office and work until lunch. And then take lunch with a client or like a colleague or someone that I needed to have a meeting with. And in the afternoon, do um, emails or meetings and try and go home by bath time. So I feel like I got kind of landed a a job jackpot too because I have gotten to make my own schedule since I um, stopped being someone's assistant and was no longer, you know, needing to be in the gallery all the time. uh, Making your own schedule
3: is one of the most luxurious things my life offers me. Um, Don't you agree, Sarah, just having that liberty and freedom and agency...
2: It's really important to me. Like I would trade it for making more money. And I also think as a mom, it's, I don't know how women who don't have that flexibility do it. And I think it's like part of the glass ceiling that we all know is just inherently so thick for women that, you know, if your kid has a doctor's appointment or a cold or whatever, to not be able to leave the office and schedule your day around your own life, Mm -hmm. I think is, um, like kind of misogynist. I, mean, I really think that in so many
0: ways, the disruption that we've experienced since March is like, it's been so good for me as in that regard, like with the schedules, cause I was the one that was always like, you know, in the office by say nine 30, 10 o'clock latest. I don't really like to get up early either, but, um, But then like never missed a day of work, like had the 48 hour maternity leave, like I was a crazy person. And now at the office until like 9pm, like I just couldn't stop, you know, it's like you get on that treadmill and
2: yeah, it's definitely that one of the silver linings of like a very terrible situation is that I think more people are realizing the value in getting to choose when you work. And I mean, Cynthia, I know you well enough to know that like you love your job. Of course you wanted to be there till 9 p.m. because it's yeah. fun. Like it's so exciting yeah. every day, you know? And I get that, but um, but I think that it can be like really restorative, especially to someone who needs to do so much creative work to be able to have like alone time yeah. at home where you're not in the office and divide things up the way works for you that day or whatever and be flexible. Yeah, totally.
0: Wait, so I want to talk about the ultimate pivot. And that's Martha, who you were a sex crimes prosecutor, which sounds so like Law & Order, yes, SVU, exactly. Um
3: I decided to open my first restaurant in 1989. Um, and it was a real pivot. And it was a, a scary pivot, but one that was... Uh, it, was I felt as if it was a calling. Um, And truthfully, you know, I was thinking about this, Kit, when you were talking about career and where you are and the the podcasts and everything. Um, You know, I went to law school having never, not one day, wanted to be a lawyer. Like I just went to law school. It was a true default education, it was kind of plan B, it was a way, and I think this is where Sarah gets this, I loved college, I loved learning, Mm -hmm. I was really sad to leave the classroom environment, and truthfully, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I had a tremendous amount of pressure on me, from my family, my parents in particular, and the pressure was, you know, because of the moment and culture in which I was brought up and where I lived, but the culture was for me to do something and become something. And the only way you could do or become something back then was to do it by going to college and getting an advanced degree. And I thought, okay, I'll go to law school. I'll figure something out. It'll give me three extra years to grow and figure out what I want. In the back of my mind always ever since i was in high school was this remarkable love of food and food culture restaurants i loved everything still due to this day about restaurants good and bad restaurants anything in between i love the entire experience i love anything having to do with the table and no matter what what point i was in my professional career law school or post law school All I wanted to do was to be in the food world, and this was at a time when there really was no food world. There was, you know, no one. I my restaurants were open for twenty some years before farm to table was ever uttered. Mm -hmm. Um, When I opened, Starbucks was just expanding. We had no Starbucks in Indiana for over ten years. Whole Foods, the grocery Mm -hmm. behemoth, as you all know was still in its infancy in Austin, Texas. So it was a long time ago. There was no food culture, no one, there was nothing special about being food. In fact, it was considered a, kind of an outlier what kind of losers did back then. Um, so I guess that the, the sex kinds. although I fell into it accidentally in the end, as most things are in life, it was a remarkable experience. And the reason it was remarkable is because um, no one else but a group of women wanted to deal with sex crimes. And as a result, right. we got to make up law and that didn't exist. And we got mm-hmm. to create systems that didn't exist. And we had all this power that was unintentionally given to us. And I learned at a very early age How to run with power and Mm -hmm. that that was a significant lesson Mm -hmm. especially as a young woman who was not really sure of what her path forward would be and it worked out to be a remarkable template a remarkable experience as i opened up my own business to just think i can do this because i already did it in one situation where there was no template to follow so it ended up to be a really remarkable experience for me, not just because it also uh, really woke me, um, mm-hmm. especially regarding sexual politics, in a way that I otherwise would not have been awoken. But and you're it still also like best friends
2: with a, a lot of the women that were that practiced in the prosecutor's office with you.
3: I am. That's none of, none of whom are still practicing in that division and sex crimes has come such a far way. I mean, there is not a prosecutor's office in any city in the United States that does not have a division um, that is focused entirely on women and children as victims. And that's really sad to say because the problem is so prevalent in our culture and goes back, truly goes back to sexual politics. But we all were in a position where we were given this project that no man really wanted to touch and at that point in time you know prosecutors the law in it itself judges the law the criminal justice system was uh, the provenance of mostly white older men mm-hmm. and we didn't have the language that we use today to talk about the patriarchy and to talk about misogyny and to talk about cultural biases but we really understood from a granular level, all those things. And all we tried to do from day one in the sex crimes office with that team was to upend biases, to upend assumptions, to upend the law and a legal system that really treated women and children as property instead of as humans. I and relate so much, Martha, taken to what care you, of and
1: you know, your experience with law school, because I... There are so many times in my college experience where I've just been like, wow, I really wish that I could just kind of have a plan for school. Like, I love school just as much as you guys both do. And it's like, I could honestly keep learning forever. Like, I have so much fun and I love the structure and everything. Um, But yeah, there, there are many times where I'm like, I wish I was just in law school or pre-med or whatever because there is such a clear track to graduation and to, you know, a set up career, but I know Sarah you
2: studied art history at I studied NYU, art, yes, at NYU and then I went to graduate school at Columbia. So, so, the same thing.
1: Maybe you could talk a little bit about that um choosing your major and deciding to go to grad school, and how that has influenced your career.
2: Yeah, I, um, like my mom, I chose to go to grad school kind of because I just wanted to continue my education and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I don't think I necessarily knew that at the time. When I was in college, I had done the Metropolitan Museum Internship Program, which is like a very prestigious and difficult to get into it's like a paid internship it's super structured it's eight weeks long you work in all of the curatorial departments at the Met and I kind of had always assumed I would work there after school and I thought that getting a graduate degree would help me um get like a better job within the museum world because in in the museum world academic degrees are like very important um but it ended up just sort I didn't I didn't want to work at the Met because that was like my dying passion. It was just the place I had had a successful internship and it seemed like the natural next step. So when I finished graduate school, I applied there, but I also was living with a friend in Chelsea and started going to contemporary galleries and kind of landed a job at Gagosian unexpectedly and serendipitously, um, which is obviously very lucky because... I'm under no illusion that it happened for any other reason than I like kind of looked the part and had a friend who was letting me stay with her in Chelsea across the street from the gallery. And, you know, it was certainly privilege and luck that got me there. But um, I started working there while I was still in graduate school, kind of finishing my thesis, but finished with classwork. And it was just so fun, like dynamic and fast paced, which a museum never would have been in the end. So it ended up being kind of the right place for me, but it was by no grand design of my life. Like there, you know, it wasn't like I, since I was five years old, wanted to work in an art gallery. And I think that that is often how it happens for people. Um, it. I agree with you. It would be kind of a relief if I, had wanted to be a doctor since i was three or something and knew but you
3: know what sarah i'm thinking in terms of my own life um you know when i went to law school there was no end game of being a lawyer right i mean i did not want to practice law i knew that much there was something that was so freeing about being in an environment where i didn't care what the end result was I just enjoyed the process of learning every day. And I, I'm probably the only person you'll ever meet who went to law school who had the best time of her life. And I didn't have the best time because I was meeting, like, exciting people and doing fun things. I had the best time because I had no constraints put on me. It didn't matter what my grades were. It didn't matter where I was going to end up working, all that mattered was that I was learning stuff myself. And there was there's real energy and power in that too. In yeah, but there's also the huge
2: privilege in being able to spend whatever it costs to go to grad school just for the sake of learning. It's like, yeah, learning's really fun and school's really fun. I, I paid all that. those
3: loans back myself. So
2: there- <laughs> no, I, I'm sure, but even being able to do that, like, you know, that's it's, I don't know. I think it's like, it's very lucky that we all get to like learn at our own pace and learn about things we care about. And I, I think like that in itself is just very fortunate, but I do think it's normal no matter what like income category you're in, what you can afford to do to not know Mm -hmm. what you want to be ultimately in life, especially Mm -hmm. in your twenties. And like, for me, I don't know if I'll work in the art gallery for forever, but I, um, or in the art world for forever. But I think like working your way up in any industry is, is gives you information you can carry over into any other job. And like, I think my years being an assistant and being kind of at the bottom of the hierarchy at Kugosian and also, by the way, working as a waitress for my mom in high school were gave me more formative skills than my like fancy director job gives me now. You know, I learned more about life doing that kind of work and that kind of labor than I do now. I just think also, also like Kugosian.
1: let's normalize not knowing exactly what yeah, you want exactly. to do in your twenties, especially like growing up or with or how someone about any who, age
0: in your yeah life. or any that's age. Like, in
1: is like yeah. that's honestly such a good point yeah Nor like being able to think about your occupation and your job like and reflect on it at different points in your life and like
0: maybe change it up if you feel like it well I think people are so conditioned to be like I need to know what I'm doing I need to know mm-hmm. what I'm doing in this relationship where are we going with this relationship what, what about my job? Where is that going? It's goal oriented. Yeah. And I think it's kind of like something that we should, especially now, especially under all the circumstances now, embrace that scary unknowingness mm-hmm. and kind of see what you can learn about yourself from that mm-hmm. and harness that in other, you know, in whatever the next thing you do is. But it's shouldn't it's not a race to any finish line mm-hmm. you know
1: i just think it's been definitely hard for me especially because growing up with someone who has been sewing since they were seven and then happened to like build this fashion empire like you knew basically i mean you didn't know exactly but like you had this passion and you made it your career
0: sort and, of accidentally but but yeah
1: it is like i think that that story of like being the child prodigy and then going on to like do that thing in your career and just stick with it and like become a master is very queen's gambit but it's like not my experience <laughs> with life like i have many different interests um and like skills in different areas that i probably will
2: happen. Yeah, but you're going to find, I know this about you, I can tell, you are going to find something, You whatever your passion is, you probably already know it. And eventually you're going to end up finding a way to make that a career. I'm just predicting the future for you. And like, maybe you don't know what it is yet, but it's in there somewhere. You're like a passionate, smart, introspective, self-aware person. There's something that you love that you're going to find out how to like monetize in a way that you can live your life by it. And that it's not a job for you and it's fun. And I feel like that took me until kind of recently to figure out in my own life. I think it took my mom until her 30s when she opened her first restaurant to figure out. I think it's really common for that to happen for women in their 30s, mostly because you're kind of trained your entire life to ignore your intuition and ignore what you care about and like fit into a box of what you know society kind of wants you to be. Um, and it takes for me it took having a baby and being in my 30s to like let go of all of that and just figure out what i actually really wanted to do every day and follow that passion and you'll get there but like what woman who lives in 2020 america under donald trump could possibly at the age of 17 know what their truest mm-hmm. passion was like you, the world is literally stacked against you you know so I, I it's unrealistic to expect someone super young to like i mean Cynthia built this incredible empire. My mom built her own empire. They, I would probably say, got very lucky that they were able to, like, figure out what they wanted when when they did. I think a lot of women probably don't figure it out until they're, like, 40s, you know, yeah. even later. You'll get there. Yeah, I hope. I mean, I
1: I will. I, I know I will. Uh, but yeah. one of my interests is definitely – in the art world just because I love like seeing what my dad's career is and like watching him kind of navigate the art world. Um, and I'm wondering what you wish you knew.
2: Um, I wish that I knew, I think when I started in the art world, I believed like every bit of hype about every artist. I was so like wide eyed and excited to be there that, um, if anyone important told me something was good, I was like, Oh yeah, it's good. And I wish that I had trusted myself to be more critical and to like, not like everything just because I was told to like it or told that it had value. Um, I wish that, I think I did realize, and this was always important for my mom to like be really nice to everybody. Not just because, the world is actually small. And I think sometimes when you're young, it doesn't seem that way, but as you age and like realize that the assistant who, you know, maybe you are a dick to 10 years ago is now on your level and you will run into them again. I think, you know, that's one very good reason to be kind to people, but also it just like makes your day to day life easier at your job and it's kind of like a small way to bring yourself joy. Um, I mean my mom definitely instilled that in me so I can't say I ever went out of my way to be difficult with people but I think it's like really important to know and also I I really appreciated I like really can't say this enough I really appreciated everything I learned when I was doing the worst jobs at the gallery and when people come in later in their careers having not done the worst jobs at the gallery and they come in as directors or come in as you know up higher up in the hierarchy they are less effective and I think that there's so much to be said for like suffering for a couple of years and doing the you know being the person who wants to stay late and get there early and take out the trash and change the toilet paper rolls. Like you just learned so much about the, how to work somewhere efficiently. And, um, yeah, that was really, I, important. I think
0: that is like, that's such great advice. I really think there's so many classic stories of like the William Morris start in the mail room. Um, you know, everybody starts at that level and works their way up. I think that's such a great philosophy mm-hmm. and, um, Yeah, we kind of do that in our company. Everybody does everything. You know, you have to start and learn from the ground up, Mm -hmm. you know.
1: And you've hired so many people from internships that have been at Cynthia Rowley for
0: years, decades now. So it's like, if they can survive an internship in my company, then we're like, okay, you're in. (laughs) They get to stay. They get to stay. Okay, wait, Martha, I ask you about every picture every photo i've seen of those burgers is like
2: looks so good
0: mouth-watering incredibly beautiful and of course i love the logo maybe i there's a little story behind that i'm not there's
3: <laughs> a story so here's the thing apocalypse burger the product itself the burger is amazing it truly is it's incredible the way we source, the way we make, everything is remarkable. But what I am most proud of is its voice and its tone. And truthfully, I I have to really loop Sarah in because Apocalypse Burger as an idea came at what was up until right now the one of the lowest points in my professional career was We were mandated on March 16th to shutter all of our restaurants. Uh, We were mandated by the government because of COVID, this mysterious virus that had taken over our world. And we can argue the merits and demerits of the public policy that put a lens on the restaurant world I would argue that there's no scientific evidence supporting the public policy but in march we knew so little about this virus and we were just forced to shut down which in essence not just stopped my enterprise but also stopped the lives of the 400 people who depended on my enterprise for everything um So I was at my lowest point and it was also at the very beginning of this quarantine. And we had a family zoom. Do you remember Sarah It was the week after the 16th. It was on a Sunday and Tom and Sarah trying to lift me up said, well, why can't you do something like make something out of this? And out of that conversation came the idea for apocalypse burger and Sarah's husband, Tom Sachs, has been, and his team, have been very instrumental in helping us with the graphics and logoing, but it I was pissed off. I still am pissed off about COVID and what happened to my industry. So the tone is just one of disgust and anger and like, fuck you world, fuck you reality. You have really put my enterprise at risk. You've put people's lives at risk, not just, you know, figures. And we're just kind of sick of it. And we're just going to go out and we're going to create a new restaurant that basically says, fuck you, COVID. (laughs) See,
0: That's what what I was talking about at the beginning when I said you guys are bad, both badasses.
3: And by the way, (laughs) I mean that. I really feel that strongly about my own organization and how it (laughs) treats people, how it treats product, how it treats community. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm like, yeah, I dare you come at me because we do it so differently and so much better. Mm -hmm. And we created our own model and we are
0: living it. I mean, I think you have to be like that. You can't, there's a certain, I mean, being, you know, starting your own or running your own company, whatever it is, there's a certain amount of optimism I think that you have to have, or you would never believe that there could ever be, a you know, something, the bright side of all of that, or that it could actually happen. But there's also like to balance that out, there has, there's kind of like that fuck you world. I'm going to do what I believe in and I'm going to make this happen. And, I'm, I'll am i be pissed if I can't. And if I'm pissed, then I'm just going to figure out another way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm still going to do it. Do it or die trying. is. Coming. I
2: love having <laughs> snark. I think snark gets you far. I, when you just said that um, if things don't work out, you like get pissed off and find another way. I think that anger is really useful for women. And I think women have to like own their anger because, um, Like men have all sorts of kind of toxic qualities that they've convinced themselves are necessary for success. And it's really hard to get super far in the world being like a polite little good girl all the time. And I have found that since I've started owning my anger, I've gotten a lot farther and accomplished more. And not to say that you have to be like mean or shitty to people, but just if you're angry about something, it means you're passionate and like not shying away from that and being afraid to show your passion, I think is a real recipe for success literally could not agree with that anymore. Like I'm in therapy so
1: that I limit that because that is like how I live my life is to not get in touch <laughs> with like the sadness of my emotions and only thrive off the anger part. Um, But I definitely, I agree. I think like that's what's gotten me through college and like through all of high school and everything is just like relying on some anger um to kind of propel me forward um but maybe we could switch gears a little bit and do some questions on motherhood
0: yeah i think we should yeah yeah i really i mean sarah that essay that you wrote for hill house home was so i mean Honest and raw and, you know, heavy and truth, you know, like so many things. Like I could totally relate to so much. It of reinforced
1: that. all of my ideas about how I want to be a mother. Like I'm definitely getting a surrogate, especially. After that. <laughs> um, and it was
0: adult diapers on the. Yeah,
1: yeah. I just, no one talks about birth and it's like very scary and then you're just there and you're like oh wait I don't know anything about this like I can't even imagine um but yeah go ahead sorry I, got
2: <laughs>
0: no, I mean maybe so you can just uh yeah your journey
2: I would love to I think it's really important and I think that you're right that um historically women haven't been super honest about what the experience of motherhood is certainly like for more of us than admit to it. Um, And thank you so much for reading that piece and and for telling me that you related to it because it was like a bit scary to be as truthful as I was because, you know, most of what we see on Instagram and all of that is like beautiful, perfect mommy is loving life. And I found that really frustrating and actually was kind of the cause of a lot of my postpartum depression because um I was just kind of looking around like everyone either everyone's lying or I'm an insane person and I don't think I'm that out of touch. I think that this is actually a lot harder than like the the cultural narratives depict it to be. And I could not understand why every woman who had ever had a baby and suffered through the, like, oppressive, patriarchal medical system from hell wasn't rioting in the streets and, like, why we weren't burning it all the puff down because the the whole experience is profound and amazing and life-changing in all the best ways, but it's also complicated and extraordinarily difficult and taxing, and um, it, like, broke me apart. And... I'm really, really lucky and I have the kinds of resources that I can devote to being able to rebuild my life and rebuild it better and understand myself better. But the vast majority of women don't have access to the kind of resources that I do. And I think it's absolute bullshit that we're expected to continue the future of the human species, hide how difficult it really is and how gruesome and terrifying and painful and dangerous it is. and then like feel some sort of shame or embarrassment about what the experience is really like. And I'm still embarrassed and I still have shame about that. My experience doesn't look like the ideal Instagram mom, but I think Mark Twain said something like, um, being brave isn't forgetting that you're afraid. It's just accepting that you're afraid and moving forward anyway. And I feel that way about the, the kind of like shame and embarrassment I have about my experience becoming a mom. Like, That's all still there, but I think it's worth it to like stick my neck out and talk about it really loudly anyway, because I think that we need to develop a new way of discussing motherhood that's a lot more authentic. Um, If women, if like true freedom for women is being able to make their own reproductive decisions about their bodies, I think that includes knowing. It's not just making a decision about an abortion or about birth control. It's also being able to make informed decisions knowing the actual realities of what motherhood looks like and what kind of resources you need emotionally, uh, economically. I mean, that is all sort of sorts of information that if women don't have, I don't think that they can make liberated and true personal decisions about what their lives look like, you know, and it just feels really important to me. So I that essay that you read in Hill House, Um, I wanted, I I found, I find it very therapeutic to talk about my birth story and these are all things I talked about so much with my mom, um, during pregnancy and after I had Guy. Um, but I also in the last year wrote a book about this and I, um, am working on a TV show adaptation of the book right now. So hopefully there will be more to come, but. It's all just so gruesome. And women are just I mean, I—I w- I was reading today a text that there are a lot of cultures that um that you think women should not make any noise while they're in labor. And that it's like a, a point of pride and strength for women to, to be silent while they're laboring. And <laughs> that kind of like deeply embedded misogyny is so wild to me, but there are and it we laugh at But it
3: also what I when I read, of course, Sarah and I talked about this and I tried my my guilt point is that I felt unable to be totally honest with Sarah before she had Guy about my own birth experiences, because I felt that my own birth experience there was so much shame associated with how I felt about my birth experiences. I had three kids. I, it has nothing to do with the love of my children or my ability to mother or parent, but it was really, I did not feel like I could be honest. I had two daughters who were pregnant at the same time, and I couldn't truthfully speak to either of them from a very honest place. And that bothered me a lot in real time as we were going through it. And then after I read Sarah's work, I was really just torn up that I wasn't a better support system, a better ear, that I wasn't more honest with her. And the reason I wasn't is tied into the shame that I felt about my own experience and Like, maybe I wasn't that good of a mother because I didn't really enjoy being pregnant. I really didn't enjoy that labor and delivery. I didn't enjoy my emergency cesarean. I did not enjoy the first, I don't know, two years at home with the kid. I did not like it. Um, And I felt badly about it because I, the expectation of culture of what a good mother was um, did not match my own experience. So it... You know, the the piece that Sarah wrote was, I thought, a, a remarkable example of bravery and honesty and openness that I wish I could have been able to share my own story with my daughters, the way she has shared so openly with people. And I also kind of blame other women. I was like, what the heck? Stop saying. How it's all worth it because you get this baby. Stop minimizing the pain and the fright. And um, two of my three deliveries were high risk, and you know I was—they were—they were high risk and they were very difficult. And I was really taught that I wasn't supposed to talk about it. it's a life-altering traumatic experience that we need to really, as a lot of other things, be very open about and very upfront about and truthful. And it's hard. So thank you, Sarah. Well, it
2: is hard, but I think that the, the thing that's a real shame is like men, unfortunately, but historically, make all of the policy decisions um, and legislative decisions that affect women's bodies and you know things like maternal leave and uh, policy that's put in place that's meant to protect women. And if we aren't honest with each other about what motherhood really looks like, then we can't really expect them to know how terrifying and gruesome it is. So we don't do ourselves any sort of service by keeping up this authentic portrayal of motherhood as being beautiful and magical and nothing else. It is those things, but it's also a lot of really dark things. And I think that like someone's got to bite the bullet and be really loud about this stuff so that if, you know, unfortunately white men seem to be the ones who are going to continue to make Uh, decisions at the governmental level, policy decisions, like they need to know this shit because I want paid work leave for six months like they have in Europe, you know? I think that that's a fair thing to give to women who have just furthered the human species. There are all sorts of of perks that I think women should be owed in this world that they can't be if we aren't very clear about how actually difficult the... Yeah, but
3: you know what? Also... This is punishing, men are punishing themselves. They don't ever, under the model that exists today, they're not part of the birthing process or the early childcare process to the where they need to be. And so this masculinity, this model of masculinity
2: is toxic for them as well. Yeah, of well. course, the patriarchy is literally bad for everyone. You know, like, uh if the government could be more supportive to women who are decide to become mothers, um, those women can be more effective, um, like workers in the future. They're, you know, taxpayers, they generate jobs and wealth for our country. Like we cannot have it that 50% of the population is punished for furthering our species and like expect our economy to grow appropriately. It's, it's just like economically it's a really stupid decision to 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 punish women in that way but i think that um the internet and like instagram as much as people deride it is such a wonderful tool to actually tell the truth about this shit if you're like it does take a little bit of bravery but i think that you can't be like a rich white girl in new york city and not expect yourself to like put your neck out there because there are plenty of people who don't have the you know resources and opportunities that we have, and I feel like it's part of the duty of having even a small platform to like be as honest as you can, and hope that it can help us.
3: And you know, Cynthia, I'm sure that for years you've been asked about work life balance as a working mother, and I'm always so tripped up by that. I know question.
0: that's. I wanted to ask you guys about that both, but I know it is. It's well. It's different for everyone, you know, and it is like your own. It's I'm your also own.
3: I finally have come to the determination. Oh, I totally agree. It's different for everybody. It's how you interpret what you know, your definition of balance, if balance really exists, all that stuff. But what I've really come to the determination is is that again it we punish women. We punish mothers. They are expected to be this mythical ideal of being able to find balance and have all this, share this, not share, totally inhabit this uh, mental load of a family. And we're the ones that are supposed to organize everything, whether it's at work or at home, with our children's lives, our family's lives. And what I really think, instead of talking about how either Cynthia or how I as older women have dealt with this work-life balance issue, I think we should really be looking at the systems that do not give us the support we need. Um, as Sarah alluded to, you know, we don't have significant paid time off in this country. We don't have universal. It's all for us as women to figure out and to even put our careers on not just a back burner, but just like totally say, Fuck it. I don't, I'm not making enough to deal with all this. Mm-hmm. I'll just stay home. I mean, there is some remarkable inequity in that we cannot create systems that give women and families the support they need so that this work-life balance question becomes irrelevant and we just never have to deal I mean, with it again. I mean, I think that
0: the daycare situation is dire, like especially right now with, you know, with uh schools being closed and closing with like 24 hours notice. So, you know, I have people in my company that uh have kids and all of a sudden it's like, you, you get a text like, oh, I, you know, I can't figure out childcare for tomorrow and maybe for the next who knows how long. And I mean, that's, that's fine. We always work, you know, we work it out, we work remotely, whatever. But It's just there really aren't that many choices and it's expensive. And I kind of don't really know what the answer is, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Um, But there has to be there has there has to be systems in place that can help working mothers or working parents um, have the, you know, not throw their passions uh, out the window because. They don't have a choice
3: and also to recognize that early bonding with children is critically important and if you have to go back to work if you Mm. have to Mm. go back to work quickly um you lose out on that opportunity and you know you're punished for not having a job that allows you to be able to make up your own schedule or be able to afford to have care at home or whatever it is and it really doesn't just punish you it punishes everybody in the ecosystem of a family it's very Mm. difficult
1: one question i wanted to ask sarah i wanted to know how how are you raising guy to limit that like cultural toxic masculinity there's all those kind of corny teachers that say like raise boys and girls the same way and that sort of thing but how do you actually
2: put that into practice? Um, I it's really hard because the entire world, like every toy company and clothing company, you know, they're it's like everything's super gendered and um but I think and he's only three, so this could change and grow. He's still really little. He barely speaks senses, but I think that um having these kinds of conversations and dialoguing about these kinds of issues really openly in our family is going to be really important to him. Like I want him, I I, I, both of my parents were lawyers and I grew up like debating policy and politics around the dinner table every night. And that was really important to me being able to be articulate about the things that I saw in the world that bothered me or that I wanted to be critical of later in life. And I want to raise him like that too. Like I, I want him to, um, be as aware of current events and um, of, you know, progressive politics and things that are important to me as is, like, appropriate for his age as as he grows up. And I want to really foster an environment where we can, like, talk about these things. I mean, half the battle is just being able to articulate them, you know? And um, I think, like, once people are involved in these sorts of conversations no matter what their age it becomes so much easier for them to identify these phenomenon out in the world and um be critical of them so i definitely want to just have like a very open dialogue with him now when he's really little i mean i try and like bend gender norms where i can like i i put his hair in buns and braids most days and um he loves sparkles and i you know, I always say I'm not going to cut his hair until he can give consent for that. And um, a lot of times, people think he's a girl because he, his hair is really long. And if they ask, <laughs> and he's so pretty, big lips. And if he, if people ask me his gender, uh, you know, I just say like he he hasn't decided yet, but he was um, born male because. I just really want—I mean, it sounds kind of silly—like I want those ethics to be things that he's really comfortable with, and like a lot of that for me is why I decided so far to raise him in New York City because I like want him to have exposure to diversity and people who lead entirely different lives. That's been one of the most glorious parts about living in New York as an adult for me—is like you know, when I moved here, I had never been to a drag show or um, seen a trans person, and like. uh, that colorful richness that New York City allows is so beautiful and something that I just like really want him to raise so I want to raise him to appreciate.
0: Well, definitely you guys have a colorful life and lot, yeah. you know, colorful friends and th- there's no doubt he's going to be exposed to a lot and interested in everything and uh, amazing. I can't wait to see how he how he who he becomes? Uh, He's so sweet. Um, wait, so w- I'm gonna ask. Uh, just as we sort of <gasps> sort of wrap things oh, up, we have a good. What one. is on okay, your really mother daughter bucket list? To
2: write a cookbook together. Ah, and we and wanted literally to do a cookbook too. Except dreams. we don't know anything about. It. <laughs> no, that's okay. It can just be like the four. Like I know I don't know that many recipes, but. I, we wanted to be about like our memories of food together as a family because the way that we eat in our family is so intense. We're such well. We have to appetites. end things off with you ladies,
1: one question we ask all of our guests on Ageless is, "What do you want to be when you grow up?"
2: Um, so I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. Well, I originally was going to say a ballerina because I always wanted to be a ballerina when I was younger. And um, it didn't work out for me then. But I think maybe I have a chance as a geriatric ballerina. (laughs) Um, But I also, like, I'm just starting this journey as an author. And it has brought me so much joy and empowerment to put words to, like, my trauma and my story and what's happened in my life. As trite as it may be and as not traumatic as it may be compared to many people in the world, Um, it's been, like, an incredibly healing and wonderful process for me. And I really hope that I'm fortunate enough that I get to do it for like the rest of my life in some capacity. I feel really lucky. It took me a long time to find that I had a passion for writing. I had no idea. Um, But now that I found it, I never.
3: I, when I grow up, which my runway is much shorter than other people's runway. And I will say that um, although I have lots of things that I want to still accomplish in life, I am remarkably satisfied with where I am and what I'm working on. I really love being in the restaurant industry. I think what I'd like to do in my future is become a better advocate for people in the restaurant industry who are not in my position, Um, advocate for the women, the immigrants, the people of color who are often um, cast aside in this very mean industry. I would like to to do better by them. Um, and I would really like to finish what Pata Shoes started in 1989. And by that, I mean, I'd like to finish disrupting an entire industry because it needs it And I think that it's possible that we could do that.
1: Wow. Love it. Well, just to end off, please tell our listeners where they can keep up with you guys.
2: You can keep up with me on Instagram at Sarah Who, two H's in the middle. And I will keep everyone updated about my book and TV show. And
3: I am Martha Hoover and my Instagram handle is Martha S. Hoover.
1: All right, so I'm so happy that you guys got to listen to our stories today. As always, you can follow us on social media and keep up with our work and our crazy adventures. Then you can follow us on Instagram at Cynthia Rowley and at Kit Keenan. Thanks for listening.